0: Welcome back, esteemed listener, to another episode of Data Driven. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of delving into the mind of Nicholas Means, the Vice President of Software Development at SIM. With a keen intellect and a propensity for weaving together multifaceted concepts, Nick touches upon the enthralling topic of shame and its relevance in our ever-evolving software industry. Prepare yourself, for we shall ponder the intricate connection between shame, vulnerability, And the cultural shifts within the software engineering landscape. As we explore the depths of these subjects, Nick leaves us curious and yearning for more, recommending a podcast episode that unravels the intricacies of this enthralling topic. Now, on with the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, artificial intelligence, data engineering, and occasionally, ever so occasionally IT operations and engineering. Uh, today, we welcome Nicholas Means to the show. Nick is the VP of Engineering at Stim, spelled S-Y-M, not like the video game kids, um, and it's an adaptive process tool built for developers. He's been an engineering leader for more than a decade, focused on helping teens build velocity through trust and autonomy. He's also a regular speakers at conferences around the world, teaching more effective software development practices through stories of real-world engineering triumphs and failures. Welcome to the show,
2: Nick. Thanks so much for having me on, Frank. Excited to be here.
1: Yeah, awesome. Um, you know, and, and we were kind of talking in the virtual green room is that you're not really in the data space, but you are, I would say, dare I say, a distinguished software engineer. And there's a bunch of us in the data space now that kind of started in this world. And and I think one of the things that... that uh, when your name came across my desk, I was like, i um, reading some papers lately about, you know, technical debt in data systems, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the big dirty secret. Um, And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from software engineering practices uh, in this space as well. Yeah, for sure. So what when you say autonomy, you know, uh, as an AI geek now, when I think autonomy, I think something completely different. Well, yep. I'm, I'm assuming you mean people being autonomous, some kind of that Dilbert type corner, you know, pointy haired boss guy, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you had a, a pretty distinguishing, distinguished career. Uh, you probably have worked for people like that, and that's probably inspired you to kind of go in the other direction. Is that, is that true? That's part of it for sure.
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think. My, my journey into engineering leadership kind of involved being in like some locker room kind of cultures where the loudest voice won. And, and a lot of my motivation from shifting from writing code to being on the other side of the bench, being being a manager, was wondering if I could do better, wondering if I could, could build teams that functioned more humanely and actually empowered each other and, and supported each other in getting their work done. And the, the last 10 years of my career has kind of been a journey in that direction. So what was that moment where you were like, oh, I could do better? Interestingly, it was an episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast several, several years ago uh, that that featured Alex Harms uh, talking some about the work of Brene Brown and shame and vulnerability and the way that those concepts can inform the way that agile teams communicate. And that was like when my eyes really kind of opened to the idea that maybe the the thing that I was living through wasn't the only way to do this, and that, that it didn't have to be this hard. Interesting. Um,
1: what does that mean, shame? In terms of, I mean, you you mentioned kind of the the loudest voice in the room wins, the locker yeah. room mentality, kind of like you know, you know, it's like we're we're chimps back in the savannah back mil, millions of years ago, right? Like we. <laughs> Like, like, is that is that obviously, obviously, at some point in history of the human species that might have worked, but I don't think in software where ninety percent of it involves kind of the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I don't think that's going to work. And what, what was it about the Bre- Brene Brown kind of concept of shame and vulnerability that kind of like made you connect the dots? Because Brene Brown exists in kind of a different. Absolutely. world than, than your average you know, software. I'd like to know more about that podcast episode. We'll have to link the, to that episode because that sounds interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, so for me, it, so, so part of it is that loudest voice always wins. But one of the effects that, that almost always happens when you have one of those really loud voices in the room is that it tends to silence other voices. Um, it, it tends to make people afraid to raise their hands, say, I don't know, ask things that feel like obvious questions to them. Uh, and all that's kind of rooted in, in shame. And not wanting to be vulnerable and and not knowing something or or feeling shame that you don't know something that you think should be obvious to you. Uh, In in reality, it's not. In reality, one of the things that that distinguishes the best senior individual contributors is willingness to say, I don't know, willingness to ask questions when something comes up in, in a discussion that they don't know about. But it takes a long time in your career to kind of build yourself up to that point of confidence where saying, I don't know, is an easy thing for you to do unless you're in an environment that's, that has high psychological safety and where those questions are invited and, and where the, the environment is very much set up to be oriented around growth and around making sure that everybody is able to ask those questions, able to push back on each other when they don't necessarily agree with the, the direction something's taking. Um, not in a, a loud chest-thumping kind of way, but more in a, all right, let's talk about this. I, I don't know that that's the best way to proceed, but maybe there's something about your position that I'm missing and just that, that sort of curiosity interesting how does the how does shame relate to imposter syndrome uh, interestingly enough my very first conference talk that i ever did was on imposter syndrome and that this was kind of this line of thinking is kind of what sent me down that road and made me realize that was a thing that i was dealing with um, it's it, it very much relates to it uh, very much the idea that it, it's hard as a software engineer to kind of get perspective on how good or bad you are as a software engineer you're really dependent on other people's feedback to do that And that's one of the key components of imposter syndrome is anytime you're in a career where something is subjectively judged, which code quality, subjectively judged, there's, there's rules, there's best practices. We don't agree on the rules and best practices. So that puts us squarely in in the subjective side of the house. So it's really no different than, than being a professional musician or a ballerina or something like that. You're being judged by the, the quality of your work output, but it's a subjective set of standards. And people in fields that are judged by subjective standards are especially prone to imposter syndrome.
1: Really, I did not know that because um, I, I mean, it may make sense as you explain it that way. Because if you're a, a civil engineer, right, the bridge mm-hmm. is either going to stand up or it's not, right? It's going to shake too much or it's not, right? The wind, yeah. like the a the narrowest the bridge, right, the wind's going to hit it the wrong way. Something's bad's going to happen or it doesn't. It's that's it's a very real world thing. I, I I've yeah. often kind of wondered as software engineers, or even this applies to data people too, right? What we deal with is so abstract, Mm -hmm. you know, that it is hard to kind of gauge that. And I, I I can't be the only one that thinks that because it's subjective organizational politics plays a huge role in how someone's judged. I'll Mm -hmm. share a story. I used to work at this consulting firm. Actually it was back when I met Andy, uh, who's not here today. Um, but, um, this guy wrote the most awful code. I don't want to say his name for, you know, lawsuit reasons, but his last name and the word code became a synonym for garbage code. Right. But he was such a politician, he would walk around and like everyone loved this guy. No one wanted to call him out on it, even though he wrote the most god awful bits of code. Yeah. And and that was when, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was an aha moment, but I was like, I was like, oh. He should be selling used cars. He should be kept away from a keyboard. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, that gets into like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Where, where yeah. the, people, the people that often feel the worst at their job feel that way because they know what bits of knowledge they're missing. And the people right. that feel the best at their job feel that way because they have no idea what knowledge they're missing. They, they just feel very confident in the things that they do know and they're not worried about the rest of it. Um, so it's sort it's, of this idea that the more intelligent you are, the more you're going to struggle with this stuff.
1: Interesting. It's almost like um, the self-reflection kind of gets in this recursive into infinite loop and you kind of lose sight of it. Yeah. And if you, and if you do, if you are completely oblivious, you're unaware. It's, it's kind of like a, a cruel trick the mind plays. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So how did you, we were talking about physical uh, engineering and things like that. Like Mm -hmm. uh, what, obviously uh, you know a bridge falling down that happens right How, what what can we learn because it's subjective it probably oh i don't i never say never as a policy usually um see i even qualified that um <laughs> what can we learn from real I, I hate this this was always a thing because there's always like there's real engineers right like the people yeah. who build stuff and but i mean like what can we learn from physical uh engineering disciplines right because this this has come up before I I can imagine. And what, what can we learn from them?
2: So the fascinating thing about that is the lessons that there are to learn in physical engineering disasters are all still based in the human side of it, because even though steel is steel is steel, and it behaves according to a set of physical rules that we know, the people that work with steel still make mistakes in how that steel is going to behave. I've done, you know, I've done a series of talks kind of on on connecting real world engineering disasters to the software world. Uh, one of them that the the steel metaphor brings to mind is the one I did on Citicorp Center in New York, um, which is the building that's sort of built on stilts. It's it's built up on four legs. The legs are actually on the the sides of the building, not in the corners. And that created some wind loads that weren't accounted for in the original design. And then when it was actually being erected, they changed the way that they fastened the structural members together. Um, thinking that the the original designer of the structure had over-provisioned them and that they didn't need that amount of string. They could just do rivets and stuff, or they could do bolts instead of rivets. And it turned out that it would have, it was vulnerable to a hundred year storm and a hundred year storm could have actually blown that building over. Um, and so it's, the the story kind of gets into, Phil LeMessure, the, the, the engineer that designed it, basically raising his hand and going, hey, I figured this thing out thanks to a, a comment from an engineering student. We have to fix this building. And like, like sort of the process of talking about what happened himself, um, talking about the mistakes he had made in the design, bringing it to the attention of people that could then do something about it. In this case, the people that own the building, Citicorp, who financed the work, who worked with insurance companies. Um, The whole thing is, is a story of, you know, when you make a mistake, it's better to raise your hand early than try to sweep it under the rug or try to cover it up because you'll end up making a bigger mess in, in the process. And the consequences usually aren't what you've built them up to be in your head. So that's that's sort of an example that that kind of gets into the human side.
1: No, that's awesome. Like uh, there are there are things in my life that I if I had learned that lesson sooner would have been a lot easier. <laughs> I,
2: I think that's true for all of us. And that's one of the reasons that I I find I mean, I'm I honestly I kind of came into this line of, of conference speaking because I like to read about disasters a lot. I I watched way too much seconds from disaster as a kid, and I've always been infatuated with this stuff. And it's it's sort of a way for me to justify taking a really deep dive and learning a lot about one of these things and getting something productive out at the other end of it versus it just being a long Wikipedia safari for its own sake. Um, But I... (laughs) But I, you know, there's, I think there's a lot that we can learn from people that have been doing engineering longer than us because the, the human factors stuff, the, the communication between people working is still a, a thing that existed in the physical engineering world. And that's been going on far longer than we've been building software for computers. So there's absolutely things that we can learn from those disciplines.
1: Interesting. And in regards to the Citibank building thing, I remember seeing something on the History Channel about those. But apparently, like overnight, like they had crews working in the middle of the mm-hmm. night. And they, is it true? I don't remember all the details, but is it true they largely kept
2: it hush hush? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. They wow. would go in and and they would build these welding shacks around the the places where they needed to weld inside the building because all of the all of the cross members were exposed inside the building and had just been drywalled mm-hmm. around them. So they would go in and build a little plywood shack and knock the drywall off and, and weld it. And there's pictures of the building where you can see it lit up in the night with somebody welding on one of these structural members. Uh, Wow. They they didn't tell people what was what was going on. It came very close to needing to order an evacuation because of a tropical storm that was headed towards New York. And the storm ended up turning away at the last minute. Wow. Wow. I do remember the
1: part about that hundred year storm was uh, basically um, um, almost happened. Yeah. All right. Here's Andy. And in all of our years of podcasting, it's the first time he has uh, shown up late. So uh kudos for him. <laughs> uh I will I will I will either leave this edit raw uh or um <laughs> or uh kind of include it uh with the uh the thing. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll clue Andy in. Uh Nick means is a uh VP of software develop this I will edit out. Uh VP of software development at a, at a place called Sim uh and he has connected um uh, he's done a lot of personal research out of his interest in, um, uh, disasters and how those oh. lessons can be learned, uh, in software engineering Where software engineering. He, I, he can, I can, I can tell if I'm paying attention, uh, is that, you know, it's largely been this, you know, who, who can bump their chest the loudest type thing. And it's not really been, there, there's a certain pecking order that, May have worked in ancient times, but works terrible in software and engineering. Is that about right? Yep. Cool.
3: Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to have to listen to the first part of this. <laughs> <laughs> this that, reminds that sounds... me of
1: Spaceballs. This, like, right? Spaceballs. Let's yeah. go to the instant machine <laughs> home video.
2: <laughs> when will then be now? Now. <laughs> just now.
1: What
3: is this?
2: <laughs> this is now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened?
3: Classic. It just happened. <laughs> Classic never
1: play that part again <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: all right so now that nice. we were on i'm sorry what? i was
3: gonna say it's nice to meet you nick and you uh, as
2: well yeah, yeah
3: sorry sorry um i was late i it's a great problem as a consultant to have being double booked and stuff and usually we're able to work this out but um i am experiencing too much business again great problem to have still a problem Yeah,
2: great problem. problem. Especially right now, it's a great problem,
3: right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm very, very thankful and grateful for that. But um, I know Frank. Frank did a wonderful job, and I'll just uh, I'll hush now, and uh, we can get on with the show.
1: All right. Um. So we were talking. Uh. So so that's interesting. So with software engineering, with with buildings and physical things right you know the nuclear reactor can melt down right the um bridge can collapse the city bank building could almost tip over um with software engineering you got a lot of other problems too right i mean security breaches mm-hmm. uh come to mind and and in your in your kind of your your sheet like you mentioned something called a blameless mindset what is what is a blameless mindset
2: so, I mean, it's really the the orientation that anytime something happens, your primary goal should be to learn from that thing, not to figure out whose fault it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gets into uh, if, if you if you've done any research into like safety too or, or human factors, it gets into the work of sidney decker and and what he calls forward accountability um, kind of the idea is that nobody comes to work intending to do a bad job, and if if they make a mistake that causes an outage or causes a security breach they probably already feel pretty bad about it and don't really need you piling on most of the time to learn their lesson. Uh, what they do need is a chance to tell their story um, so that they can kind of put the facts together in their own mind. They can help other people learn from, from what they just did. Um, and that, that kind of gets into when, when something happens. Um, it's often very tempting, especially for, for us pointy head, pointy head boss types to point the finger and and to find somebody on whose head the the blame for this thing lays but when you do that when you focus on establishing blame as as a primary goal in one of these situations you prevent people from learning and you prevent people from raising their hand when it happens you encourage people to sweep it under the rug um, yeah. kind of what we we're talking about I mean, it's it's the thing if phil measure had done this with city corp center city corp center probably would have fallen over at some point point. and mm. so having a blameless mindset when something goes wrong Encourages people to raise their hands sooner, bring other people in on the solution, let the whole organization learn from the the mistake that they just made, um, and, and and you know it's kind of rooted in a systems thinking mindset as well. You know, how can we change the system so that a, a mistake that's shaped like this is more difficult to make in the future?
1: So here's a random question. I noticed that GitHub has something called the blame tool. I think it's part of Git. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a tongue in cheek reference or is that actually? like actually a blame, like, what are your thoughts? Walk, I don't know the history of that. So maybe, maybe you could tell me and then. Yeah, I mean,
2: it it is from Git itself, not from GitHub. I had something that Mm -hmm. just showed up in the, in the GitHub UI from, from Git. Um, I actually on my own system, alias it to get credit. So I don't have to type, get blame. Ooh, I like that. Oh, that's awesome. And that's, I, I, it's definitely not my original idea. I know a lot of people that do that as well, um, just because get blame puts you in sort of a certain frame of mind when you're reading code and it's often not a helpful or charitable frame of mind whereas yeah. Git credit is more like okay who can i ask to hear this story of, of why this line right. of code came to be
1: yeah okay. that was because that yeah when you mentioned blameless mindset and i was like but i mean i guess that speaks to kind of like you know like you know the origin story of git i guess blame the blame tool or i don't i don't know like it just To me, it just seemed like there's got to be more to that story. Yeah. And when I first heard the tool, the guy I was working with, he thought it was funny. Oh, they have a blame tool. So you always know who's to blame.
2: And I was like, (laughs) I was like, that's kind of mean, actually, you know, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, and again, you know, it gets into like the, the prime directive of retrospectives. If you've done, spent any time in the agile world, Mm -hmm. this idea that everybody was doing the best that they could at the time that they did it and made the best decision they could with the information they had. Right.
1: What's interesting, and in, as you see those, that agile processes kind of happen, right? There's, there's the theory and then there's the practice. Mm-hmm. And it's organizational culture tends to take all the oxygen out of that room. Yeah. You know, and, and you're not surprised. So I guess that's, that's a thing, <laughs> you know.
2: I, I, I like to, and I forget who coined this distinction. It may have been Kent Beck, the idea of big A agile versus little A agile. Yes, um, Big A Agile, the idea that there's all, all these off-the-shelf methodologies that you can just pick up off the shelf and adopt into your organization, and, and suddenly the the heavens will part and the trumpets will sound and you will be more agile. Um, you look at something like SAFE, the scaled agile framework, and you can pretty clearly see that that's not the case. It's just waterfall in disguise at the organizational level. <laughs> um, whereas more, more little a agile is the, the actual principles, the spirit of, of sort of the agile software movement, where it is more autonomous. It is more short planning cycles, getting feedback early, shipping in yeah. small increments, that sort of thing. And it's really easy to pick up an off-the-shelf Agile methodology and not do any of that stuff.
3: Right. I, I remember hearing an interview once, a podcast, probably a decade ago, where uh, someone referred to their, um, their software development life cycle as Scrum Bud. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we're doing Scrum, but, and then, you know, something followed that wasn't Scrum. And it sounds a lot like what you're describing.
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, one of the reasons I I tend to be more, with my teams, more Kanban inspired than Scrum inspired. Mm -hmm. And and the reason for that is because I've seen too many teams try to win the sprint. And and it sort of creates this perverse incentive to just get code across the line no matter what it takes. Yeah,
3: I I like the community aspect of Kanban, the swarming. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen that work. I, I actually learned that on a real live plant floor uh, nice. So, you know, I've got I, I used to joke with Frank that I've got about eight more years of books I can write about <laughs> process engineering because I know where they're going. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, and, and what's interesting is we've reached that phase where I was in manufacturing in the late uh, 90s and we reached that phase where we learned where it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Now, for instance, it didn't work in engineering. It didn't. So yeah. it's interesting that we're kind of getting to that maturity. I guess that maturity would be a good description of it, where we're seeing, in the context especially of software engineering, that it's falling over some. Mm-hmm. Um, it works really, really well on the plant floor mm-hmm. when you're in a manufacturing environment. That quality goes through the roof. Deming's methodologies are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The um, and maybe you've already covered this, but the culture wherein a lot of that from the manufacturing perspective was developed is a vastly different culture than we have today in the United States. It wasn't even, I mean, it was Japan, right. You know, coming out of post-World War II and that's, that is a different place. Mm -hmm. It's probably different than Japan today.
2: I'm sure it is. Uh, Yeah.
3: You know, so that, that has a lot to do with it. And you did. I heard, I heard the screed behind the words about corporate culture. That's, that's a huge driver. It it just is. All right. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's
2: really not any different than, than what we're talking about, about off the shelf agile methodologies, right? Like all of these things are tool are toolboxes. There's useful things in all of them. And there's things that don't apply and don't work on an organization by organization, team by team basis. And and the trick is you have to be able to have all of these tools in your toolbox and then go up to a team and go, oh, I know this shape problem. and These are the things that we can try that, that will help make this better.
3: Right,
2: right. What's that's... your um? um sorry, Andrea.
1: No, go ahead. Go ahead. How do how does a how does a software engineering team change or leadership within software engineering change the 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 organizational culture? Because I think that's a big problem. I think that software is eating the world. I think that was a Mark Zuckerberg quote, and I think that it, yeah. It, Definitely, since ChatGPT, I would say, kind of AI is eating the world, right? But, but ultimately, I'm old enough to remember when software people were those weird people that they they stuffed us in the basement mm-hmm. and did not want to hear anything from us other than everything's working fine, everything's fine. They certainly did not want to hear uh, management philosophy of uh, uh, stump speeches from us. How, I, I imagine that's changed a little, but. How does how does someone who's listening to this wants to affect change? Wants to kind of bring that blameless mindset into their organization? How do they start? I know that's probably like a three hour talk, <laughs> but where would they?
2: How would they? What's the first step? Yeah, i mean, What what a great question. Um, you know, I think step one is just learning and and kind of figuring out where this information exists. So like. Reading some of the blog posts from John Allspaw when he was when he was CTO at Etsy, uh, reading some of the work of Sidney Decker um, that he's done on safety too. Um, I mean, he, John John Auspah is still out on the speaking circuit doing talks on a regular basis, so there's there's plenty of material to learn from out there. I think it's it's probably most at home in the SRE community right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where I see a lot of safety cultures and human factors research coming out is in, in SRE at the moment. Um, it was, it's still in the DevOps movement as well. Um, that's kind of where I got acquainted with it. Um, so step one's kind of learning and then just teaching, um, giving people the opportunity to realize that, that there is a different way that some of this stuff can be done. Um, you know, as far as an engineering leader being able to affect larger change in an, in an organization, the one advantage that an engineering leader has is that software engineering salaries are usually one of an organization's biggest cost centers. And so mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to make a case that optimizations there will pay off if you can make a, a, a persuasive case for the optimizations that you want to make. And that's where some of the things like getting into manufacturing theory and queuing theory and systems thinking and being able to put together a very data driven kind of case around some of the improvements that you're trying to affect and the ways that you're trying to affect them. Um, it, it's funny. One of One of the most common interventions that I found myself making over and over again with engineering teams is putting web limits in place. Just because when an engineering team is trying to work on too many things at the same time, they end up spending so much of their time on context shifting and and trying to load up new contexts and pick up a project that's completely different than the one that they're currently working on so they can provide effective code review, that sort of thing. Hmm. And it's pretty easy to kind of talk through the data of if we work on less, we can get more done. But it's really counterintuitive on the surface yeah. when you first hear that statement,
3: well, the whole drive towards parallelism, mm-hmm. you know from a machine level right through you know it bleeds through they're all leaky abstractions to throw yep. out some other hip terms. but you know that that whole idea that if you do things in parallel, you're going to be able to accomplish more. and I've seen um i I can't remember the book I was reading reading a book by someone. It was maybe two, three, four years old, and he was talking about just the exact opposite and he had use cases and it just you know serialize it and you'll get more done and it, mm-hmm. it it's exactly that context switching you eliminate yep. that it, human brains stink at mm-hmm. context context oh, switching awful at it yeah yeah so great great point
1: interesting so another thing that you you kind of uh, mentioned is talking about compliance. Mm-hmm. And before everyone kind of tunes off, turns off the <laughs> the thing and stops, <laughs> um, stops listening. Bear with me. There's a point here, and I think it's important. Uh, no one gets excited about compliance. I I know I know that. Um, my wife works in IT security compliance. No one's happy to see her. I'm I'm happy to see her, but no one at her job is happy to see her.
3: Dear right? Roberta, you'll never. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Alexa, order some flowers. Um, <laughs> The um, but with the rise of software being more and more important, more critical mm-hmm. to our, uh, I was talking to somebody else. It might have been a, a previous, uh, a, the, another guest on another completely random topic. I think regulation is coming to the software industry, whether we like it or not, because of its core kind of nature to our just economy and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I think that compliance is going to be one of those things where. You know, learn it or, you know, learn it, love it, or, you know, leave the industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, so, so like, how do you, how does that, it seems like that would kind of dovetail into this, right? The, the, the learning from mistakes and, and meeting these compliance. I mean, certainly we see it in data and da- various data
2: compliance schemes, but, but how does it right. think this
1: is, how does this going to affect
2: kind of software? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I was going to say is you can you can already see some of this in things like GDPR and the California privacy regulations, the the stuff the White House has been doing lately on software bill of materials. We're starting to see it kind of creep in and in, in, the, in the periphery of the things that we work on. Um, you know, it's it's tempting to just look at it and go, this is dumb. This will never work. It's not going to make any difference. Um, but there's a there's a there's a more charitable way to look at it in that it's pointing at a thing that actually is really important. Um, you know to to your point, as software reaches the world as organizations hold on to more and more and more and more data, that data is a liability and if if we're not taking steps to make sure that a we're only holding the data we actually need to hold, and b we're doing it as carefully as we can. Uh, we're putting as many walls around it as we can and still be able to do our job on on an ongoing basis um, you sort of have to t- put that responsibility hat on and, and think about it in terms of how can I be a good steward of the data that people have entrusted to me in, in this organization that our customers have given us? Yeah. Um, and, and in that that perspective, when you're looking at it from the spirit of law versus the letter of the law, it makes some of the controls that you need to put in place for some of these compliance regimes a little bit easier to swallow. And it also gets you into sort of a an outcome mindset because, you know, it's really easy to go through and, and comply with some of these regulations with checkboxes, um, just do the right. things they say and, and not really actually make any difference in the overall security of your organization. But if you look at it from a perspective, this is actually a good thing, and, and we should actually be doing this, then you can go about it and put meaningful controls in place that, that don't make it harder to get work done, they just make it safer to get work done. And that's ultimately, that's ultimately the goal. That's, I mean, that's what we're working on at Sim. It's sort of the whole point of the product.
1: Yeah, that's a good segue. So what is SIM, S-Y-M, um, not The Sims. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's not, I know that's not the first time you heard that joke today, but, you know, I'm
2: sure. <laughs> so, it's, it is not the first time I've heard that joke, for sure.
1: Um, what what is what
2: does SIM do? Like, what, what so is we, the, the product? It, it's essentially at its core a workflow engine. Um, it allows you to build simple workflows to request and orchestrate access to to production systems. Um, it's probably easiest to explain by just telling you how we use the product at sim. We have all of our production infrastructure behind our own product. Um, so when one of our engineers needs access to a production system, they just they create a request in Slack and then anybody else on the engineering team can approve that request. So kind of a, a two keys to launch the rocket approach. Um, and then in the back end there's some code that runs in AWS. We assume a role in AWS that lets us Escalate somebody into that administrator access role or whatever permission set that they've requested so they can go in and do their job. And then an hour later or, or four hours later, whatever time interval they've requested, that access expires. So you don't end up over time accumulating that janitor's key ring of system access that you don't actually need on a daily basis.
3: Right. That's cool.
2: That is interesting.
1: And it, it, you said something a, 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 a little bit ago that I thought was. Might have sound blasphemous to some of our listeners, right? That data is a liability. Yeah, but the more like you kind of unpack it, oh, I mean, you're right. Like you know, we're so conditioned to think of data as an asset and an asset only, right? That I think we would lose sight of reality, right? Or the risks of holding data, right? I, and I was just thinking, like you know, if I had a company and I had, let's just say, some kind of PII, mm-hmm. right? And I after so many months, or once I'm done doing what I'm doing, I purge it, right? Mm-hmm. I probably would sleep better at night if if I heard uh, about like there's a uh, there's a breach or anything like that, right? Like it's kind mm-hmm. of like I think, I think that there's a for lack of a better term, data hoarding happening in a lot of organizations. Yeah, and I understand it, right? Because there's just if we've been so conditioned to think data is only an asset, right? Oh well, why not just store Storage is cheap you know, right. But if you also think that it can also be a liability and obviously not all data types are created equal, right? Yeah, of course. And not all liabilities are created equal. Mm -hmm. Then that becomes a pretty cold calculation of, well, yeah, maybe we'll figure out, you know, if they have an even or odd social security number, if that means that they're more likely to buy our product. Yeah. But I don't want to even hold that stuff anymore. Right. Right. Or I'll collapse it into, you know flag one flag two based Mm -hmm. on that right so you you know i i I like that i hadn't really thought about that
2: i mean one of the interesting use cases you know if you think of healthcare data there's some of that that you have to hold but hipaa is pretty strict about who can access it and when they can access it um so one of the workflows that we've seen set up is is requesting approval to access a particular patient's data with a reason for needing that access so that it's all audit logged it's all recorded who requested it who approved it that there was an actual business need Access that data that it wasn't done willy nilly, or that, that you had the patient's permission to access that data. Um, you know, just creating that, that simple little bit of due diligence to say, yeah, this data access happened for a reason. Um, right. And that it's automatically documented. So then you don't have some tedious manual process where you have to fill out a form and, and fax it to headquarters and wait on them to contact somebody and, you know, the, the typical Byzantine data access processes in healthcare.
3: Very cool, I I tweeted that I did an overheard. Uh, okay, I do that more and more lately here, um, because during the pod, uh, you know, the podcast recordings, because I'm uh, definitely trying to tease season seven, and um, there you go. Yeah, it's that's a that is a great a great line. It's it's got controversy written all over it. Uh, yeah. Nicholas, thank right. you.
2: Absolutely, got <laughs> I, yeah, um...
3: I I totally agree with you uh, on, on that, and it's. You know I and I understand the drive to say data is an asset because for so long people just looked at at data as being something kind of neutral mm-hmm. you know it was hanging around maybe they were you know it was taking up space filling up the sand or, or, byproduct. or right.
1: a byproduct or byproduct right? right you know I, I always think of the story about I, I don't know exactly the chemical or whatever but apparently um I guess steel mills used to produce like this kind of ash and it was useless until somebody figured out that it's good for um getting traction in snow hmm. or for car for, for parking lots or something like yeah. that. I, I it's, it's a bit late in the day. It's been a long day. So I, I don't forget exactly what it's about, but I remember. So, the, you know, so the story goes is that, you know, whoever figured that out, I mean, they the, the, Steel company is just like here. If you're willing to take our trash, go ahead. As soon as they found out that this guy was making money off that, suddenly it was no longer free. <laughs> they charged like you know five dollars a ton or something like yeah, yeah. It was just interesting how how um you know as the saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But as soon as yeah. it becomes a treasure, then other people are going to see that.
2: Yeah, I so mean true. at point in time example, Reddit's in the process of making their API paid right now, so that you have to pay to train la- large language models on it.
1: Interesting. Right. I would shudder to think what a a large language model trained on <laughs> that would be. Yeah, a Little well, scary. You
3: know, I don't want to go to, go down that that path. Something I've been <laughs> watching a lot lately, uh, for some for some playtime work I've been doing, and um, it dramatically dropped the uh, the cost of train because the large language models aren't as large anymore. Mm-hmm. At least the sets of tokens and such. Yeah. So it's gone down to like less than a hundred bucks that that's on, you know, certainly less than a thousand but right. in some cases like you know 30 40 bucks to train him on
1: yeah. which is a far cry from the 7 to 12 million that right. you know, yeah that some of the more popular ones have been on so it's uh, you know and, and and it it amuses me that you know you have countries that are trying to ban chat GPT, right that the, the cats out of the bag genie's out whatever genie's out of the bottle like you can't stop the signal you know like yep. it's already out and
3: great reference right.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to somebody yesterday on a completely on non-technology related thing, and I said, "You can't stop the signal," and he got the reference, so which I thought awesome. was pretty funny. <laughs> um, but I'm sorry, I cut you off, Nick. No, oh, I thought I did. Um, no, this is a fascinating conversation. I think we can go on for hours, but we want to be respectful of your time and switch to our pre-canned questions. I will kick off number one, because we have to change it slightly. How did you find your way into technology? Did
2: tech find you, or did that tech life uh, or you found that tech life? So I had an uncle that, when I was gosh, nine or ten, had an old Amiga computer, and that wow. was the first computer I spent any significant time with, um, and just nice. sort of really kind of fell in love with it as a toy first, um, and then you know not long after that. Uh, IBM mean, PCs, PC DOS came out. Um, yeah. Basic was everywhere. um Went to a summer camp and learned how to program in Basic. And uh, the the first productive thing I ever did on a computer was I wrote a twenty question quiz in Apple II Basic over Egyptian history for a sixth grade project. And I, nice. you know, I we didn't have a computer at home at the time, so I stayed after school working on that Apple II to write that code. Um, and just, I, I obviously got a good grade on the assignment and just have kind of been infatuated with being able to make the the magic blinking box kind of do what I want it to do ever since.
3: <laughs> I like that description. <laughs> Very cool. Our uh, second question is, what's your favorite part of your current gig?
2: My favorite part of my current gig is kind of, it gets into what we were talking about at the, the top of the call, um, sort of. Being able to really shape and and build a culture where the the people on the engineering team are really able to thrive and really able to support each other. Um, it's a really fun group of people to get to work with and and the way that they're able to support each other in projects and in, in growth and um, learning new things is really, really fulfilling for me from, from a leadership perspective.
1: Interesting. Uh, so we have three complete this sentence uh, questions. When I'm not working, I enjoy blank.
2: <sighs> Trying to come up with one answer for this is really hard. Uh, I'm a huge soccer fan, so I'll say that. Um, I we have season tickets to Austin FC. Um, watch a lot of EPL with my son. My son plays, so a, a, a lot nice. of a lot of ninety minute increments of my life are spent watching soccer matches.
3: <laughs> awesome. Our second is I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank.
2: That it's becoming more humane. Like the the conversation that we had at the top of the call is one that is far more common today than it was 20 years ago when I started my career. Um, and I think it's only going to get more that way um, because as systems get more complicated, we're going to have more sophisticated and complicated discussions about humans' roles and interacting with those systems. AI is a great example. Um, what part of jobs does it supplant? What part of jobs does it augment? How do we do it in a safe way? How do we keep it aligned with people. And at at the root, those are all questions about how do humans interact with technology and with each other when technology is in the room. And I think that's a really interesting bit of history to get to live through. Interesting. Our third and final complete the sentence.
1: I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank.
2: I just did my taxes. So autonomously do my taxes. That would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a moonshot goal: have
1: uh, some kind of large language model that can explain the tax code in the United States. Yeah, good, good
2: luck with that one. It would just <laughs> yeah to <host yeah. laughs> answers.
3: Oh, I thought of like three things to say, and I'm not <laughs> going to say either of those things <laughs> because
1: we, we want to keep our iTunes clean rating. I'm
3: Which not going to. I'm going to finish that sentence. Yeah, good segue <laughs> to that. Uh, share something <laughs> different about yourself. And do remember that we're a family show and we want to keep that clean rating.
2: <laughs> Something different about myself. I am really, really obsessively into pour over coffee. Uh, I spend an awful okay. lot of time and energy trying to dial in my daily cup because it's it's that just even the ritual of making coffee in the morning is sort of the thing that mentally transitions me into work as someone who works from home. Okay. And uh, it, it's one of those things that, the more time i spend on it the more i learn about it the more it rewards me with a better cup of coffee so you're doing
3: the filter in mm-hmm. the kind of the ring and you put the grounds in mm-hmm. and then pour the coffee through there yep okay. that's interesting so yeah i've i do a french press but i've been nice. doing that for i don't know way too long but the um i've heard aero press i've never i've mm-hmm. had a lot of people recommend Aeropress. press i've never really tried it it's great so it? Yes, yeah, it's
2: it's a it's a really easy way to get a really good cup of coffee.
3: So what do you think the big difference is then between AeroPress and Old?
2: Um, I, With AeroPress, pressure is a component of how you're brewing. I mean, it's not okay. anything close to espresso, yeah. um, but but you're generally going to brew. You're going to grind a little bit finer for AeroPress. You're going to extract a little bit different notes out of the coffee with a little bit of pressure that you add. So mm-hmm. you kind of have to dial in the rest of things to make sure you're extracting the part of the coffee that you want to drink.
3: You said notes, mm-hmm. so is that how you think about it musically? Uh, flavor notes, flavor, flavor notes. notes. So okay, like, I didn't understand.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you get into like the the one of the easiest ones to taste in in lighter roast coffees is the difference between a natural process and a washed process coffee. Um, so if you get a single origin washed process coffee, you're going to get all kinds of citrus notes from it. You're going to get orange and lemon. Uh, If you get a natural process, it's probably going to be weighted more towards the berry side of the flavor spectrum. So a really good Ethiopian natural process coffee prepared well is going to taste like blueberry pie in a way that you just cannot miss.
3: Wow. I've had really,
2: I've had good coffee. I, and I'm sitting
1: here like, like when I, when I wake up in the morning, like I am, the only thing I can functionally do is let the dogs outside and, lift the Keurig machine drop the pot in hit the button which I know is probably blasphemy um to 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 the purists out there but I'm just incapable of doing it. however if I am somewhere and I can enjoy a good cup of coffee after I've had my first couple of um, cups to get conscious um, I do I do I have had that that type of Ethiopian single source and it's it's just very it's very strange like it almost has like a blueberry ish pie mm-hmm. thing going on like like what is in the you know like but and then I think it was at some airport somewhere it might have been Seattle where they had like they take coffee extremely seriously and
3: mm-hmm.
1: I was like no 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 that's just part of the thing I was like oh that's interesting
3: so yeah you had me at blueberry now <laughs> I got blueberry yeah I'm a I'm a blueberry fanatic nice <laughs> it's, uh, awesome
1: um all right so Audible is a sponsor of data driven uh do you do audiobooks books and, and I do. do you recommend?
2: Okay, cool. So uh, any particular listens you would recommend to our uh, listeners? I will give you two. Uh, right now I'm listening to John Scalzi's agent to the stars uh, narrated by Will Wheaton, who is my absolute favorite audio book narrator. Um, I actually pick audiobooks based on the fact that he's the one that narrates them. Cause he's just oh, wow. the, the character he brings to the book, the way he brings out the story. I just, I really enjoy. Um, so that's a fun, it's a really fun listen. Um, and then On the nonfiction side, my favorite management book of all time is Turn the Ship Around by Admiral David Marquet. Uh, It's about a captain of a a nuclear submarine that sort of uses the same kind of things we've been talking about to to turn around the performance of the previously worst performing boat in the fleet. So kind of bucking military hierarchical management traditions for something that gives the people on the boat more autonomy and ownership over over the thing that they're in charge of on, on the boat into some pretty spectacular results. Nice. And it's it's very narrative, so it doesn't read like a business book. It's a great audiobook listen. Yeah,
1: cool, interesting. So, uh, if you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, you will get one free audiobook on us, and then we get um maybe enough to get a, a nice cup of blueberry pie. One of those tasting. blueberry pie
3: coffees. I was thinking the same <laughs> um, thing. If you uh, sign up, if yeah. you sign
1: up, health support the yeah. show helps us uh, kind of grow and. We're already in season seven. What we're recording us before season seven launch. So hello, future people. <laughs>
0: um,
1: uh, and then finally, the final question is: uh, Where can people learn more about you, Nick and Sim?
2: So for me, uh, all I've got a lot of blog posts and all of my talks up at my personal website in means.dev. And then okay. for Sim, you can visit our website symops.com. Uh, sign up for a free tile trial, kick the tires. Um, we'd love to get feedback on it. So if any of your listeners try it, uh, have questions about it, um, feel free to to reach out to me or anybody at Sim. We'd love to help you kind of get started on the platform.
3: Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Any parting words,
1: Andy? No,
3: I'm just really sorry now after listening to the two answers that referred to the beginning of the show. I'm really sorry I missed that. I'm going to have to wait. Well, we can use With that that, that
1: machine from Spaceballs. So you can go back <laughs> And then redo it so future Andy will know how it all turned out. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I think Nick knows that we, we you know, we we do a lot of, we do at least there always ends up being at least one movie reference. So we got it that. Nice. Yeah. nice, nice. All right. Thank you, Nick. Any last thoughts?
2: No, thanks so much for having me on. This has been a really fun conversation. Awesome. Thank you. We'll we'll let Bailey finish the show.
0: And that wraps up another intriguing episode of Data Driven. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Nick Means, the VP of Software Development at SIM. From exploring the concepts of shame and vulnerability in the software industry to diving into the fascinating world of engineering disasters, this episode has been a thought-provoking journey. We delved into the importance of being good stewards of data and the significance of compliance with regulations, all while finding ways to balance security and efficiency. As we wrap up, we encourage you to reflect on the valuable insights and takeaways shared in this episode. The path towards a blameless mindset, fostering stronger organizational culture, and embracing the principles of Little Agile are just some of the actionable steps we discussed. Remember, mistakes happen, but it's how we learn from them and share our experiences that truly makes a difference. So let's continue to grow, adapt, and shape the software industry into a more resilient space.